Jason asked uh, that I fill in for him this morning, and uh, I said, sure, because I like all you people, so I don't mind talking to you. Uh, he also said that, and I don't think that I'm going to keep you all for the full hour or whatever you all do here, but I'll do this for as long as I can. Uh, he said that y'all have been on relationships for a while. How long? Um, for a long time. Uh, and he said that it would be fine for me to uh, teach whatever the Lord led me to teach. Uh, unfortunately for y'all, it's on relationships. Yeah. Uh, you know, relationships are, are kind of a thing that I, I've never, I mean, there are, I, I did try to do a Google search for this class on how many books are written on relationships in 2016. You can't find out. There's probably thousands and thousands. I got tired of scrolling through. There should be no reason that we have dysfunctional relationships in this country. There are so much material on having good, healthy relationships that it seems like that's just not the case. Um, and I know that the class that y'all have been going through over the last several months uh, have equipped you to have functional and capable relationships with one another and interpersonal relationships, but that's, I'm, I'm not here to help you with that. Um, you know, I'm not a, a self-help guy. I'm not a self-improvement guy. I'm not Tony Robbins. Uh, I'm here to tell you what God told me to tell you over the course of the last week. Because, although our relations and relationships with one another are important, there is no relationship more important than the one we have with God. There is no more important relationship. And unfortunately, as we're going to get into a little lesson here, there's too much bleed over from the junk that we deal with with one another, we kind of carry that over into how we deal with God. And uh, maybe I can help you all with that a little bit this morning. Relationships, my, my title, if you ask me about a title, they're going to put it up here, and I was, man, y'all are fancy. We don't have that over there. Uh, relationships, my subtitle would be uh, An Exchange of Revelation. An Exchange of Revelation. Uh, to me, it's very obvious that God is interested in the subject of relationships and specifically having relationships with us. I was, um, I was talking to Ethel on the way over here, and, and we were kind of talking about this subject. And if you think about it, the entire scripture is, is, that is what it's geared toward. That's what its purpose is, to help us develop a relationship with God, right? Um. So God is definitely interested in the subject of relationships. Uh, if you look at the first book in the Bible, we see not only uh, these momentous acts of creation, the, the revelation of our origins, but also the desire that God has or had to interact and be in communion with man. That's why we're here. That's why. That is a profound thing to understand. That is why we're here. We're here to be in relationship with God. The fact is, one of the components of a fulfilling life 
are the healthy relationships and deep interactions we have with other people. That is a component of our lives. And, you know, I'm not the most gregarious person that you're ever going to meet. Um, once you get to know me, I'm okay, though, I think. Uh, I'm fortunate to have good relationships with the people I love. I often said that I am a very fortunate man in that I married my best friend. And, and that's true. Um, I make sure I say that when Ethel can hear. So <laughs> kind of butter her up. But it's true. Relationships, they enrich our lives. Uh, there's something that deepens our experience, and it's very important. Unfortunately, we don't put as much into our relationship with God as we do with one another, which is unfortunate. So relationships, one of the basics or bases of a relationship is an exchange of revelation. We develop our connections with one another by the slow, methodical revelation of ourselves to others. Slow, methodical revelation of ourselves to others. The balanced exchange of personal information or an exploration of one person into the life of someone else. Think about it. Think about how we deal with one another. We are sovereign beings, or as sovereign as we were created to be. And whenever you enter into a relationship with someone, this is one sovereign being intruding into, I hate to use that word, but that's what it is, into the life of someone else. Two unique entities coming together and learning about one another. That's a profound thing, if you think about it. That's why you have six million books written on the subject. It's not easy being in relationship with one another. So I said that the, it was, it's a balanced exchange of personal information. How do, you, how do you develop a relationship? Can anybody tell me? How do you develop a relationship? You interact with someone else, and you begin to divulge things about yourself to them, right? I mean, relationships is a process of discovery. That's what it is. But it's a balanced exchange. And what I mean by that is you will never divulge to a prospective mate. Let's, let's use that. More than they're telling you. It has to be an equitable exchange. Does that make sense? Yeah. We don't want to put ourselves at a disadvantage. And that seems like a very selfish motivation, but it's true. We don't want to put ourselves at a disadvantage with someone else. We've been taught not to do that. We normally begin to learn about one another's interests, uh, families, and we're very careful about the family thing. You know, you don't, you don't tell them about your crazy uncle or whatever. You leave that for much later. Well, so we learn about one, one another's interests, families, jobs, and benign aspects of our pasts and lives. We give them just enough to keep them interested. You know, I didn't tell Ethel everything about me. She learned that later. But I told her enough to keep her interested. I revealed just enough 
say, you know, this guy's he's not so bad. Actually, Ethel couldn't stand me when she first met me. I'll just reveal that to y'all right now. She actually liked my cousin. She ended up with me, though. Hello. But that was because I began to exchange information with her, and she began to exchange information with me, and I learned about her interests and her life and her hobbies, and she learned the same thing about me. All of that stuff that was benign, all that stuff was, was the sugar coating on the top. You know what I'm saying? It had, had no meat to it. She didn't begin to learn about my goofy nature until later. As our relationships progress, we begin to reveal deeper aspects of our character and more relevant elements of our lives. This is one way to determine the seriousness of that relationship. You begin to open up to this person, or you should, if it's going to be a meaningful, lasting relationship. And that is based upon what? Can anybody tell me what that's based upon? Any? Anybody? Anybody? Trust. You begin to trust that person. So you begin to reveal these other things in your life and about your character that may not be as flattering to us as all the other stuff up to that point. But often, no matter how deep the connection to someone else the deepest aspects of our lives remain hidden. We retain the shame. We do not divulge the worst failures of our life. We don't reveal the most grievous wounds and scars, no matter how long you've been in relationship with people. My mother and father were married for over 60 years when my dad passed away. And I'm sure that there were things in his life and her life that they've never told one another. It's the truth. Because we never trust one another, one another to that level. Because the possibility for humiliating rejection always is there when we're dealing with humanity. Right? So you're not going to divulge those deep things that sometimes you hide from even, even yourself. Has anybody ever heard of a fellow named Bernard L. Madoff? If you have, raise your hand. All right, three people. Don't feel bad. He has a unique distinction, though. Uh, Bernard L. Madoff, has anybody heard of the NASDAQ? The NASDAQ, the Dow and the NASDAQ? Okay, Bernard L. Madoff helped develop the uh, system that created the NASDAQ. He was very, very influential in the uh, financial markets for 40 years, maybe longer. He was, he was a chairman of the NASDAQ. He, was, he helped write some of the regulatory uh, policies that governed, the, uh, governed Wall Street. Very influential man. Highly, highly regarded. I mean, he was kind of the go-to man. Whenever you thought of a pillar of an institution, Bernard Madoff, Bernie Madoff, was that guy. Uh, unfortunately, and he employed some of his family. His two sons worked with, he had a, a securities firm, and 
his sons, he employed two of his sons, Andrew and Mark, and his brother, Peter, I believe. And uh, he had this persona of, of he was in, had an impeccable resume. He was a man of tremendous integrity, or so people thought. And uh, within his securities firm, and within his firm, he had a division that dealt with certain types of investing. And in 2008, December 2008, Bernard Madoff called his sons into his office. I just watched a, kind of a docudrama of this. I knew about it before, and that's what made me interested in it. But he, he called his sons into his office and said, I need you to go home with me. I need to talk to you and your mother together. It was December, and there were some other extenuating circumstances that they were curious about. And um, so he, they came home, and he sat his family down in their living room and told them, it's all a lie. It's all a lie. Bernard Madoff was the, uh, has the distinction of committing the largest financial fraud in American history. He, he defrauded over 4,000 people out of over $64 billion. It rocked the country, the financial institutions. It damaged the confidence of an entire nation in dealing with the financial industry. But that was not, that was not the most profound damage that was done. What struck me is so impactful in watching this and learning about this was that his sons and his his wife knew nothing about it knew nothing about it it destroyed their confidence in this man who was a cornerstone of integrity in their lives destroyed them he was a fraud this man held within him an incredibly dark secret that no one knew about except the chosen few people that he had segregated from his business to deal with and perpetrate this large Ponzi scheme. This man destroyed the lives of people, ruined their pensions, took all of their money, ruined them, his friends, family. The impact of this revelation so affected his family that his oldest, uh, his youngest son, Andrew, who died a few years later because of uh, cancer, disowned his own father. He was asked one day at a, uh, um, at a college he was speaking at about his father. He says, I don't have a father. My father's dead to me. Never spoke to him again. His wife of, they had met when they were teens and had been married all this time, wouldn't even, she changed her phone number so that she wouldn't have to take his calls while he was in prison. His oldest son, Mark, because of the shame associated with his father and the suspicion, the suspicion, I mean, it's his son. Who's going to believe that he didn't know anything about it? Committed suicide in the same room as his young son, or right outside the door of his it destroyed their lives because of this deep secret that he never revealed to anyone. And these were people, his son and his wife, his two sons and his wife and his brother, who went to prison. 
These were people he loved. He obviously loved them. He was compelled, because of that love, to not reveal. It was selfish, yes, I know. But not to reveal this aspect of his, of his character, of his life to them. That's what we do, unfortunately. Our ability to develop or even enter into a relationship with God is corrupted by our involvement with one another. We transfer into our interaction with Jesus the accumulated baggage of our lives. Our perception is corrupted and influenced by the outside world in which we live. We learn to measure situations and people not by the dimensions of God, but rather by the weaknesses of our own flesh. The trouble and hardship that every human being faces causes us to look at life in a certain way and alters our expectations or perception to conform to our carnal nature. We, because of that interaction with Bernie Madoff and his family, his family could never again trust another person. Some of us have experienced the same thing, maybe not to that magnitude or maybe to that magnitude. And because of these interactions and because of the way we deal with one another and because of the, the damage that we do to one another, we transfer that over to our relationship with God. We do not trust God in the level or at the level that we should. We will work on interpersonal relationships and try to refine those. And yet we will keep our relationship with God on a very surface level. We keep God on the periphery of our lives. The things that we generate within our lives and the things that we suffer cause distrust and suspicion a hesitance to commit. We create feelings of inadequacy in one another. And these responses, the distrust and the suspicion, are, are expected within the context of this world because of our experiences. We consider being reserved a natural byproduct of surviving in this world. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily wrong. You do have to guard your heart, right? We know oftentimes from things we've endured that laying our hearts bare can open us to further damage. This is what we've been taught through experience. We look at exposure in this context as synonymous with vulnerability. Vulnerability. Emotional vulnerability. We have been hurt by someone else because we exposed ourselves to that influence. And because of that, this experience permeates the rest of our lives. It affects future relationships, and it affects our current relationship with Christ. Because our perception has been contaminated by our involvement with the world in which we live, we miss the most basic truth of our interaction with God. God already knows 
your deepest, darkest secrets. He already knows. And he loves you anyway. Think about that. If you can come to understand that, that transforms the way you look at your relationship with God. We live in a perpetual state of living behind a mask because we do not want people to know that that one thing that has the potential to destroy our relationships. And because of that, we're so careful about that. Because of that, we transfer onto the Lord that same suspicious attitude, that, that reticence to, to commit fully to God. Because how can God love us if I am so wrong within? You don't know me, really. That's what we think. God does. The Lord knows you. He has the very hairs on your head numbered. There is nothing that can emanate from you that he doesn't know. And yet, he loves you anyway. Think, that is profound. It's profound. It's liberating. Romans 5 and 8 says this, But God commendeth his love toward us. He gave his love to us. In that, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners. Not when we were getting things together and, and getting our lives right. Not after we repented. But while we were yet sinners, he died for us. We want an apology, a heartfelt apology, a sincere apology from people that grievously wound us before we even think about forgiving them. But God manifested himself in flesh and died on a cross while... We were sinners. He did not wait for the apology first. In reality, our depraved state is what compelled Christ to yield himself to the abuse and indignity of the cross. He didn't allow the humiliation of the cross to befall him. He didn't He didn't allow himself to be hung on a tree because we're so good. We're, they're so nice. Humans are so nice. I'm going to go ahead and allow myself to be sacrificed for them. No, he he didn't wait for that. It's not true. Number one. He allowed himself to suffer the indignity of the cross for the very people That put him there. Think about that. Think of that as a template for building a relationship. Is there any argument in your married life 
that reaches that level? Maybe he does. I don't know. Ethel has had no reason to be upset with me. Just saying. God has demonstrated to us that he is not repulsed by our sin-stained lives. He is willing to forgive and forget. Immediately, without hesitation, and without reservation. Now, we've established that the Lord already knows everything about us. He already knows everything about us. There are no secrets that can remain hidden from God. So the question now becomes, do we know Christ? Do we know Christ? Many of you in this room have experienced the gift of the Holy Ghost and have been baptized in his name. We are in relationship with God. But the question remains, if God knows all about us, have we bothered to learn everything about him? Remember how I said in the beginning that a relationship, a healthy relationship, is about the exchange of revelation, an exchange of learning about one another? How healthy would the relationship be if you learned everything about your spouse and divulged nothing to them? Would not be very healthy. A.W. Tozer, who was an uh, evangelist or uh, a pastor, really, uh, back in the, oh, he was born in 1897, he died in 1960-ish, very influential, influ- influential man in the evangelical movement, wrote a book, The Knowledge of the Holy, and he began it with this sentence, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He goes on to say that we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. Our perception. Oh, excuse me. What What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He goes on to say, we tend by secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. So realizing this, isn't it important to know God as well as we can? Is there anything more important in our lives of more value than learning about the Creator? Why do we relegate God to a secondary position in our lives when it is obvious that he wants to have a meaningful relationship with you and I? And consider this. He wants to have a meaningful relationship with you, and he knows all about you. I'm amazed that God loves us. I'm amazed that Ethel married me. But I'm amazed that God loves us. Because he knows those intimate details of our lives, and he loves us anyway, and he wants to have relationship with us. But we keep him 
at arm's distance. We only want to know the very basic things about God. And if you read the Bible, this Holy Scripture is God laying Himself open to humanity so that you can know everything that you can about Him. You remember how I said that we, we like an equitable exchange of information? That's not how God works. He knows everything about you. And He wants you to know everything about Him as soon as possible. Ephesians 3, 17 through 19 says that Christ may dwell, dwell in your hearts by faith. Dwell, that means to be there at all times. Not relegated to a secondary position, but to dwell there. That ye being rooted and grounded, knowing him, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height, and to know, to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. That's a beautiful scripture. It defines what God wants us, what he, it defines our interaction, our perfect interaction with Christ. Paul appreciated the value of exploring God, of learning as much as he could about his Savior in Philippians 3 and 8. He says, yes, everything else is worthless when compared. I don't know what translation I use, but I'll go with mine. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ. Do we love Jesus that much? One of the things in our progression through relationship with our spouse or whoever is as we express these more hidden things, the things that we are dark, are not necessarily flattering in our lives, but that we are willing to divulge. We understand that this person is valuable to us because they don't run the moment that we tell them these things. Like, oh, they stayed there when I told them about that. Oh, not bad. You found somebody. And I go back to saying that God already knows these things and he hasn't run from us, ladies and gentlemen. He hasn't run from us. So do we love Jesus as much as Paul? That's a real question that we have to ask ourselves. The Lord has willingly revealed himself to fallible humanity. He has laid bare his character in writing so that those he loves can learn more about him. In reality, this isn't an equitable exchange of vulnerability. Because the only one who is really exposed to the risk of rejection in this scenario is God. How many times have our decisions 
rejected God from our lives? How many times have we failed to meet the standard that God has set for us? How many times have we denied Jesus? Peter did it three times. How many times have we done it? Paul goes on in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. I'm going to read out of the Amplified Bible translation. It says in verse 10, For my determined purpose is that I may know him, that I may progressively become more deeply and intimately acquainted with him, perceiving and recognizing and understanding the wonders of his person more strongly and more clearly. Oftentimes, our relationship with God is confined to the parameters set by our human interaction. Many of our human interactions are initiated for the purpose of gain. I know that that sounds somewhat cynical, but it's true. I'm in a, I'm in a business that I have to network. I hate that word. So overused. But it's true. I forge and I hate to even use the term relationships, but I forge relationships with people simply, and this sounds so bad, and I'm recording it, simply for what I can get out of them. I'm a sales guy. Don't throw anything at me. At least I'm not a car salesman. No, I'm just picking. If anybody's a car salesman, I'm just picking. I sell pharmaceuticals, animal pharmaceuticals, and so there's even a, 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 an application or some program that where you link with other people in a similar, you all probably know what I'm talking about. It's called LinkedIn or something. I don't, Courtney's laughing at me. I never use it. It's terrible enough as it is and stuff we have to do. But our, our relationships are one that are motivated by gain. We are, we assess when we interact with people even if it's at a subconscious level, what can I gain by this interaction? And that's unfortunate because it's a very shallow way to look at people and a certainly a very shallow way to look at God. But that is the parameters that we live within. We pray for healing. We pray for help at work. We pray for financial blessings. We pray for clarity for the direction of our lives. Me, me, me. God, I need this, I need this, I need this, I need this. Think about when you pray in the mornings and at night. The composition of your prayer. How much of it revolves around benefiting your life? There's nothing inherently wrong with asking for these things. Actually, you're admonished by God to do those things. The problem arises when these become our only interaction with the Lord. We relegate the Lord to a cosmic vending machine. If our relationship remains at this level, we will never progress into a deeper, more fulfilling interaction with Jesus. We will remain within the infancy stage of our relationship never attaining that level of understanding 
and revelation that fosters divinely inspired peace, joy, and contentment. Hebrews 5, 4, uh, 12 through 14 says, For when for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which should be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. This is an expectation that we move beyond that first encounter with Christ into a full appreciation of his character and love. Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7 says, But ye have, but as ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as ye have been taught. The opening chapters of Genesis paint a beautiful picture of Adam and Eve enjoying a personal relationship with God. The story of God and Abraham does the same thing. But Moses and David, it deviates from that. The stories of Moses and David open a window into their hunger to know God more intimately. On Mount Sinai, Moses cried out to God, I have, If I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you. And God responded with an extraordinary revelation of himself. Though he was by no means perfect, King David's life and his many psalms reveal a deeply personal relationship with God and a longing for him. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Their hunger for God is an example given to encourage our desire for God. Knowing God more deeply was not the, the privilege of only a few luminaries in the Old Testament. God called all of his people to know him personally and love him supremely with heartfelt devotion. He called Israel to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. And through Jeremiah we hear this. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. And we're, we're told to ask for wisdom. Neither let the mighty man glory in his might. And we are told to ask for strength. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. And God certainly opens the windows of heaven to bless us. But let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me that i am the lord which exercises loving kindness judgment and righteousness in the earth for in these things i delight saith the lord the lord is willing to reveal himself to humanity all we have to do is care to look ladies and gentlemen that's where i'm going to end exactly at 10 45 y'all can stand for a second we do a lot of things in church. We're going to have a great worship service a little bit later. And God's going to move in his unique way. But as you're sitting in your pew and determining your course of action later in this service, consider what we discussed here. Do not give God reserved worship. Do not hold back when you give him thanks. 
And don't allow your life and your relationship with Christ to be based on only what you can get from him. He's wonderful. He's wonderful. Why don't we express that to him, not only through our worship, but during the course of our days and weeks and years to come by trying to learn and get to know him as best we can. Let's pray. Lord, we love and appreciate you this morning. We ask you, Lord God, to bless us with knowing you better, to deepen our relationship with you, to reach a level of understanding and knowledge, dear God, that surpasses, Lord Jesus, the motivations of this flesh. In your precious and holy name, we pray this morning. Bless these beautiful people, Lord. Guide them in your holy and precious name, we pray. In Jesus' name.